This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. At this hour, the death toll from coronavirus stands at more than 47,000 in the United States, nearing that horrific 50,000 mark. This time last month, the death toll was 500. So much loss, so quickly and sadly expected to grow. Of course, along with all this loss and almost 850,000 total cases, and let's remember, even many who survive this will endure agony and health issues. There is also deep economic pain caused by this pandemic shutdown, and figuring out the balance between lives and livelihoods is immensely challenging for every political leader. Tomorrow, the state of Georgia will join South Carolina in reopening some businesses considered non-essential, as other states across the nation plan to try to do the same soon, even as the influential model often cited by the White House says that no states should consider those moves until at least May 4th. May 4th for five states, even later for most others. In the last hour, the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, warned that the U.S. is not where it needs to be on testing. I am not overly confident right now at all that we have what it takes to do that. We're getting better and better at it as the weeks go by, but we are not in a situation where we say we're exactly where we want to be with regard to testing. Fauci's opinion shared by the National Governors Association, which late this afternoon released a roadmap to recovery for states. Step one, of course, is testing, with which the association writes continues to be inadequate in this country. We're also learning more today about the silent spread of coronavirus. The New York Times now reporting that a Northeastern University model reveals early hidden outbreaks. According to this model, on March 1st in Boston, Seattle, Chicago, San Francisco, and New York, when the official case number in those five cities was just 23, there may have actually been 28,000 people infected in those five major cities. And as CNN's Martin Savage reports for us now, New York State now estimates close to 14% of its residents have likely contracted coronavirus, according to preliminary results of an antibody test. The staggering numbers jumped again today, revealing the wider pain of a pandemic. Another 4.4 million people filed for unemployment claims, bringing the five-week total to greater than 26 million. I'm sitting here without a paycheck with no definitive answer on when I will be returning to work. It's roughly 16 percent of the entire workforce. We've gone through all of our savings. You know, we've really had to dig in. The economic turmoil is pressuring a number of states to begin easing stay-at-home measures, allowing some non-essential businesses to reopen. Tomorrow, Georgia will allow businesses like salons and bowling alleys to reopen. South Carolina reopened some businesses Monday, and Texas is expected to make its reopening announcement tomorrow. You're going to be able to, to, to go to a hair salon. You're going to be able to go to any type of retail establishment you want to go to. But as states rush to reopen, medical experts warn they're making a deadly mistake. There is a danger of a rebound. And I know there's the desire to move ahead quickly. That's a natural human nature desire. But going ahead and leapfrogging into phases where you should not be, I would advise him as a health official and as a physician not to do that. Even as states open, coronavirus continues to spread into the heartland of America, triggering new outbreaks and public fear. New hotspots in Midwestern communities, often home to meatpacking plants and manufacturing facilities. 
Boston still hasn't hit its peak. And the surge is going to continue. And in Wisconsin, at least 19 cases are now tied to in-person primary voting. And a new modeling study reveals a hidden explosion of coronavirus was rapidly spreading through U.S. cities long before many Americans and government leaders understood what was happening. According to research at Northeastern University reported by the New York Times, outbreaks were blooming in New York, Boston, San Francisco, Chicago and Seattle long before testing revealed any serious problems. We have a lot of community transmission that was really unknown. And our efforts in the beginning to sort of contain and mitigate, you know, were, it was definitely, you know, out of the bag at that point. And in a preliminary study announced by New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo today, 13.9% of New Yorkers tested positive for antibodies, which could prove the virus spread wider than first thought. And there is a key coronavirus model that is often cited by the White House that is constantly updated, and it makes reference that many states should delay any kind of reopening for quite some time. It also talks specifically about Georgia. It says that Georgia, according to that model, won't be able to open safely until at least June 22nd. Remember, the governor is partially reopening things tomorrow. One of the uh, complaints that the National Governors Association has made is that there isn't enough testing going on. That's certainly true in the state of Georgia. The governor of Georgia says they're trying to make good on that, but we're still way behind here. And the governor says, look, we'll uh, do the testing as we reopen. The medical experts say, no, you do the testing first to figure out if you can reopen. A lot of confusion and concern about tomorrow here. Back to you, Jake. And the testing still lagging. Martin Savage, stay safe, please. Uh, joining me now, Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, good to see you again. The New York thanks, Times Jake. reporting on good this data from Northeastern University that shows a, a hidden spread of the virus weeks earlier in Chicago, New York, Boston, San Francisco, and Seattle. At a, at a time when the officially confirmed cases for those five cities was just 23, but they're actually saying it was in the tens of thousands. What does that tell you and other health, health experts? Uh, and how might this change your approach to the virus? Well, first of all, that study doesn't really tell us much at all, other than that it's another modeling study that confirmed that we knew that, in fact, there was lots of virus out there. The study that you did just talk about, though, which I think is important, is the one that Governor Cuomo announced today, showing that basically about 13.9 percent of New Yorkers may have antibody. Now, that, I think, is really an important study in the sense that, uh, first of all, it's done by a very good lab. I might have some uh, slight uh, uh, changes in the study protocol. I wouldn't just have done grocery store shoppers because they're the people likely to be out, not the entire closed population. But the fact of the matter is whether it's 13.9% or 10% of New Yorkers that are infected, what that's telling us is think of all they've been through and yet how far we have to go because this virus will keep marching until we hit 60, 70% positive for antibody, meaning you either got it through disease or you get it through a vaccine, and vaccine isn't coming soon. So it just tells you even in New York how much further we have to go with this situation. Mm, that's grim news. Um, we now know, according to the Los Angeles Times, that the first death in this country to 
coronavirus due to coronavirus is currently believed to have been back in early February. Uh, a 57-year-old woman, she was seemingly healthy. It's being called one of the first cases uh, and also through community spread. She didn't apparently get it through travel or through contact directly as a health care provider with a patient. What do you take away from that? Again, I think it's just confirming that what many of us said uh, that this was here. Back on January 20th, our center announced, I put out a document saying that this was going to be a worldwide pandemic. The transmission was already occurring in many countries around the world, and it wouldn't become apparent necessarily for weeks later until we had enough cases in the absence of testing that would just be able to demonstrate in a community, you have a COVID outbreak. So I, I don't think this is in any way, shape or form for most of us new news. But what it does is confirms it. But what it also does point out is, again, I come back to this, as bad as it's been so far, we really are only in the second inning of a nine-inning game. And we have a lot to go yet. Even with all the dynamic transmission we've seen so far, we just really are just starting this whole entire pandemic experience. So you think that we're just in the beginning stages of this, and and you've projected as many as 800,000 deaths or more in the U.S. over the next year and a half. How do we make sure that doesn't happen without completely killing our economy? Well, you know, you actually and your lead-in had a very, very important line in there about the, the whole living with it and livelihood, this idea that we have to do both. And this is a critical discussion that has to happen right now. And it can only happen if, number one, we all agree we really do have a major challenge ahead of us with the fact that it will take 60 to 70 percent of the population to be infected and become immune before we stop this transmission. Second of all, we can't lock down. This idea that we're going to lock ourselves down permanently, we have to do it now. This is very important to get this particular wave flattened down. But this is going to continue. And what we have to figure out is, do we come up with a strategy that says if you're younger, people who are not as likely to have severe illness or dying, that they can come back into the economy, that in fact, if they get infected and recover, they actually are like rods in the virus transmission reactor where they don't let transmission occur as much. These are the discussions we're not having. You know, the discussions in in intensive care units right now where they don't have enough ventilators is who gets the vent. What an incredibly difficult discussion. We have to have as a population the same discussions about not just how we're going to die with this virus, but how we're going to live with it for the next 16 or 18 months. And recognizing that this is not a battle. This is a war. It's a whole set of battles. And we need to figure that out. So our group is trying to facilitate these kind of discussions to say, how do we live with this virus while at the same time contain it as much as we can? Hopefully we're going to get a vaccine. We need frank and honest dialogue, indeed. Let me just ask you before you go, what do you make of the states like Georgia, Colorado, others uh, beginning to reopen? Uh, My colleague, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is concerned that this could end up leading to another surge in those states. What do you think? Uh, I think you're putting uh, gasoline on fire. I think right now this is one of the things we've learned. If we're going to learn to live with this, then you just don't walk in the face of it and spit in its eye because it will get you. And I think that that's a really important issue right now. When we have transmission increasing, when our hospitals are not able to take care of it, we don't have enough testing to even know what's going on, then that's not the time to loosen up. So if we're going to loosen our society up, if we're going to do this idea of living with it, this is the worst example of how to start that discussion. I wouldn't do it. I think that they will... Uh, You know, there's an old commercial from the old days, oil fram commercials. You can pay me now or you'll pay me later. 
I fear that these states will have to pay a big price later on because of what they're doing. All right. I hope you're wrong, but you're certainly not alone in saying that. Michael. I hope I am, too. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. And I know you do. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, I know you do. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you as always. Be sure to tune in tonight for a special CNN Global Town Hall hosted by Anderson Cooper, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Their guests include FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, renowned chef Jose Andres and award winning artist Alicia Keys. That's tonight at 8 p.m. Only here on CNN. Coming up as President Trump disregards some of the science when it comes to coronavirus. We're going to take a look at his long battle with science and facts next. Plus, it's the equivalent of all of Florida and South Carolina combined filing for unemployment for the first time. All of them in just the last five weeks. We're going to discuss the economic devastation ahead as well. Stay with us. Breaking news, the influential University of Washington coronavirus model used by the White House has just been updated, and it shows that some states should wait even longer to safely reopen. I want to bring in CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen now to break it all down for us. Elizabeth, the model found Florida, for example, should now wait until June 14th to reopen instead of June 11th. Explain. You know, these models are constantly changing. They are a work in progress. And the reason why, Jake, is that they are tracking, A, how is the virus spreading in any given location, which is always changing. Those numbers are changing. And how are we doing with these community mitigation measures, these social distancing measures? So what they're saying is, you know, on Tuesday, we gave you a certain set of dates at which we thought states could safely kind of reopen again. And now we're adjusting them. In the case of Florida, in the case of Georgia, it's a few days later. In other words, the picture is looking worse than it had before. And that's how they make these decisions. And this is a model that a lot of people are paying attention to, including the White House. Elizabeth, uh, the estimated death toll has also been revised, sadly, upwards uh, to 67,641 by August. It was uh, just under 65,000 previously projected. How do they explain that? You know, there's an important note that we need to make here, Jake. That is with community mitigation measures. That horrible number you just read is if we continue social distancing. If we lift these measures, that number goes dramatically higher. And so we have to remember that that number is with community mitigation measures. And so what's happening is that they are closely tracking how is this virus spreading, and they're seeing that maybe it's speeding up a little bit in some areas. And so that's why they they put the number at a higher number. So they're constantly watching how is this virus spreading? How are we doing at containing it? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. We've seen a division between what President Trump tells the American public and what we've heard from his administration's top scientists and doctors, uh, first on how serious the pandemic is, then on whether hydroxychloroquine should definitively be prescribed. It continued on and off in that vein and continues to today. At the most recent briefing on the same podium, within just minutes of each other, Dr. Anthony Fauci backed up the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, warning that coronavirus will still be around this fall. Only for President Trump to say, well, maybe it won't. And even if it does, it won't be as bad. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, for a man who's long sided with conspiracy theorists over experts as to whether vaccines work or climate change is real, even a global pandemic has not stopped President Trump from questioning scientific experts. It's a showdown that plays out again and again. The president 
versus science. Thank you very much, everyone. Armed with facts, figures, and some of the smartest minds in the country, President Trump chooses to instead go with his gut. Now, this is just my hunch. Or what he hopes will happen. It's also possible it doesn't come back at all. The latest episode was saying Wednesday that the coronavirus may not come back later this year. It was in response and direct contradiction to the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, telling the Washington Post that the virus could come back in the winter and be even more difficult when coupled with the seasonal flu. When Dr. Anthony Fauci took the microphone, he backed up Redfield and set the president straight. There will be coronavirus in the fall. We didn't have an... The other medical expert on the coronavirus task force, Dr. Deborah Burks, also unwilling to agree with the president. And Dr. Sure you're protected. You there's a good chance that COVID will not come back. We don't and know. Trump has said he wants to give people hope, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. But false hope can be damaging, even deadly. President Trump has promoted the use of the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine with no proof that it's effective against COVID-19. If you're a uh, doctor, a nurse, a first responder, a medical person going into hospitals, they say taking it before the fact is good. But what do you have to lose? They say take it. Several new studies, including one by the VA, say the drug may actually harm critically ill patients. So what do I know? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I have common sense. Trump's boosting of the treatment was part of the firestorm that resulted in a top HHS scientist losing his job. In a stunning statement on Wednesday, Dr. Rick Bright said that he was sidelined after he resisted, quote, efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs promoted by those with political connections. Bright said he had insisted that money for the coronavirus be invested into safe and scientifically vetted solutions and not in drugs, vaccines and other technologies that lack scientific merit. One of those was hydroxychloroquine. The president claimed Wednesday he'd never heard of Dr. Bright. If a guy says he was pushed out of a job, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Good morning, Chair Get. Another scientist the president has heard of is Dr. Nancy Massonier, the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. She infuriated the president after warning in late February that severe illnesses in the U.S. related to the coronavirus were not a question of if, but when. The president got the news as he boarded Air Force One in India to head home. He then canceled a meeting with top health experts about mitigating the virus after he heard what Massonier had said and the stock market crashed. Trump's skepticism for science extends well beyond the COVID crisis. It's been a thread throughout his term, from pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord to ripping up environmental regulations, even disputing the paths of hurricanes. That was the original uh, chart. Last September, showing a map of the path of Hurricane Dorian that the president changed with a Sharpie to include Alabama, even though meteorologists said there would be no impact on the state. Now, we know that the president is not a fan of people whose messages go against his. And after Dr. Dr. Nancy Massonier spoke out, in February, she was allowed to keep her job, but Jake, she was no longer allowed to speak on behalf of the CDC about the coronavirus. Instead, the CDC has not had their own press briefing since last month, and theirs is essentially folded into the daily coronavirus task force briefing 
which of course is now led on a daily basis by President Trump. There's one more thing that we should note about the coronavirus task force. Reuters is now reporting that when the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, stood it up back in January, the person who we put in charge of day-to-day operations was his young chief of staff, a 37-year-old named Brian Harrison. Now, Harrison had no health care experience, no medical experience, no scientific experience. In fact, in the six years leading up to joining HHS, He was a dog breeder in Texas. He bred Australian Labradoodles. And Reuters reported that people in the White House would, in fact, refer to him as the dog breeder. Jake. Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. Uh, Joining me now to discuss former Obama senior advisor David Axelrod and CNN White House correspondent Caitlin Collins. Uh, David, uh, let me start with you. Um, This is a clear pattern of the Trump presidency. disagreeing with the science. Now, his advisors say the president is just trying to project optimism and give the American people hope, be the cheerleader in chief. What do you think? Look, I I think that that's that it's one thing to give people hope and cheer them up. It's another thing to engage in pure fantasy that causes people to act in ways that are not in their uh, self-interest. That uh, director at the CDC in February was trying to steal the nation for what was coming. She predicted big uh, disruptions and severe illness. She was right. The president was wrong. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bright uh, was warning that uh, hydroxychloroquine was an untested uh, answer and could be damaging. He was right. Uh, The president was wrong. Now the president is saying, as he was about the first wave, that the second wave uh, might not come and we might not have virus uh, in September uh, and November in the fall. This causes uh, uh, confusion among the public. It's also the reason, Jake, I think that his numbers are so low in terms of trust when it comes to information. AP had a poll out today uh, that said that just 23 percent of people uh, had high confidence in the information that he is giving them, even though he is talking to them on a daily basis. The governors have much higher ratings and the scientists are at the top of the list. He should listen to them and take his direction from them. Uh, Caitlin, um, you heard David just mention uh, Dr. Rick Bright. He was in charge of uh, coming up with a vaccine and, and uh, reassigned. Um, we heard in Alex's piece, of course, uh, he was removed from his job and is complaining that he was trying to fight back against people pushing hydroxychloroquine for, for mass consumption. He was OK with it uh, being uh, prescribed under doctor supervision. What are Dr. Bright's lawyers saying about all of this? Well, Jake, I had someone predict to me last night that this is going to become a fight that plays out. And now it seems we're starting to see that because while the White House has refused to really rebut any of the allegations he makes in that lengthy statement he put out yesterday so far, we did have a spokesperson from the Health and Human Services Department put out a statement saying it was actually Dr. Bright who wanted the authorization, the emergency authorization, to put chloroquine in the strategic national stockpile. And now a person close to Dr. Bright is responding, saying that was basically a compromise and that he was directed to do so by HHS political leadership. That seems to be a reference to the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. And Dr. Bright's uh, attorneys are now putting out a statement saying they have not filed that whistleblower complaint yet, that one that he hinted at in his statement yesterday. But it says they intend to do so soon because they say the administration is now making demonstrably false statements about Dr. Bright. The only statement we've gotten is that HHS statement beyond the president denying knowing who he is. So we're seeing this become an argument between the two sides over who 
who's right, that we should note Dr. Bright is still trying to get his old job back. That is what he's hoping, and he makes clear in this statement through his attorneys, that he is still believing he can get that position back and go back to being the director of BARDA. David, after the news broke about Dr. Bright's ouster, you tweeted, quote, uh, where does it leave us if medical experts who urged cautions that have proven out are fired for telling the American people uh, the truth? Uh, you know, as Caitlin just pointed out, the Rick Bright, Dr. Bright is now fighting back, trying to keep his job. Do you think health professionals will will hesitate to publicly disagree with the president uh, based on what happened here with Dr. Bright? Look, I think one of the most uh, remarkable stories about this, this siege has been the way in which Dr. Fauci, for example, Dr. Burks, uh, uh, and others have had to man, uh, maneuver the president, even as they're trying to confront this virus so as not to offend him or contradict him without uh, betraying their own integrity. And I think it's a very, very hard line to walk. By the way, this doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Bright, uh, was the lead doctor in the government uh, searching for a vaccine uh, that is the key to relieving America from this great uh, uh, siege we're under. The fact that the president uh, had no knowledge of who he was or professes no knowledge of who he was, is it's, it's not good either way. Either he doesn't know uh, and he should or he does know and he's not telling us the truth again. Kaylin Collins, David Axrod, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a member of President Trump's economic task force about how best to get the country back in business as millions of Americans yet again file for the first time for unemployment. Stay with us. On top of the health crisis caused by coronavirus, this country's economic crisis just got even worse today. The Labor Department now reports 4.4 million Americans applied for unemployment benefits for the first time last week alone. That's about the same number of people who live in the entire state of Kentucky. Over the last five weeks now, the U.S. has now lost at least 26 million jobs. And that's just a fraction of those who are hurting right now economically. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Uh, uh, Julia, roughly one in three people in Michigan, Kentucky, Hawaii have filed for first-time benefits over the past five weeks. And that really doesn't even necessarily capture the true sense of how many people don't have a source of income right now. It doesn't. You're completely right. I mean, what we're talking about now, and it's unbearable to think about, one in six workers in the United States have either lost their job, been furloughed, or are worried for their job. But I think the better way to understand the distress of this is looking at the proportion of lower-income families that have seen someone lose a job or have seen someone have their pay cut. And a recent survey this week said that's around half, just over half of lower-income families. Once again in this crisis, it's the poorest, it's the weakest members of society that are being hit the hardest. And today the House is passing the new economic relief that has $310 billion for small business loans. The Treasury Department also updated its guidance so that big businesses don't cash in. Um, Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, warned that there would be severe consequences if big businesses do that. Are, are there? I think the most severe consequence here remains being named and shamed. We're back to our Shake Shack principle from yesterday. They were named and shamed. They gave the money back. They got money from somewhere else. And this is the key. What the Treasury is now saying is if you're going to take this PPP money, you have to prove that you couldn't have got the money somewhere else. For many big companies, that's actually going to be quite difficult. But here's the kicker. 
Apple, big companies that took money in round one of this program, they now have two weeks to give that money back. No questions asked. I've spoken to two advisors to big companies today, and they say there's now too much uncertainty. Don't touch the cash. This could be a win for the little guys. Governors say that they also need relief from the government. This legislation doesn't include that. Most of the states hurting New York, Washington, California, Michigan, Illinois, the most have Democratic governors. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican, said he was not going to go along with what he called a blue state bailout, suggesting instead that states consider filing for bankruptcy if they're having financial problems. What do investors think of this? They see it as a negotiating position by the Republicans ahead of future stimulus deals and probably not a great one. Firstly, we've seen cities in the past declare bankruptcy. We've never had a state do it. And the legalities of even seeing that aren't simple. But there are bigger things here and the state colors do matter. Some of these states were overspent coming into this crisis. Illinois has a huge pension deficit as well to think about. But I think COVID-19 is being seen as a game changer here for spending, and that's colorblind, and many of these states need help. The final factor to consider here is if you let one state go bankrupt, it will raise the borrowing costs for all of these states, and that will hamper the recovery for a nation and workers, voters with it. Jake. All right. CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, thank you as always. We'll see you tomorrow. As more states consider reopening some businesses, health experts worry that that will put employees in harm's way. We're joined now by Jay Timmons. He's the president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. Jay, you're on the White House Economic Task Force. You've spoken to President Trump directly. You're worried about states opening too soon. Tell us what you would like to see. Well, actually, I think each state is going to have to make that decision based on medical evidence and, and, and evidence from their healthcare experts. What I'm most concerned about is when states are in a quarantine phase or a stay-at-home phase, when we have these, these demonstrations and these protesters at state capitals that are, that are being very irresponsible, going out without masks, uncovered, sometimes with kids, they are going to infect, uh, potentially infect, our frontline essential workers like our manufacturers. Are you getting enough guidance for all the people in your organization and the National Association of Manufacturers, whether it's from the White House or the CDC or, or OSHA or whoever, are you getting enough guidance on basic safety for these employees? So we finally were able to get guidance from the CDC. And, and in fact, we had to asked the vice president to intervene, and he did so in a very effective way. We have spent a great deal of time over the last two months making sure that our facilities are, in fact, um, so safe and healthy uh, for our employees. A lot of manufacturers, as you can imagine, are on the job now making PPE and medical supplies, cleaning agents, and food. So they really are essential employees right on the front lines. We think that we're going to be able to share some of our experiences with other sectors of the economy uh, as they begin to reopen, because there's going to be a massive need, Jake, for PPE moving forward. Every sector is going to need it, and the manufacturers are going to be the ones to, to make that happen. Well, as you note, uh, a lot of your members are on the front lines of the coronavirus response efforts, manufacturing the PPE and more. Uh, how have manufacturing plants helped with 
the needs of doctors and, and people on the front lines of this battle? You know, just uh, trying to trying to quantify, trying to figure out exactly where all the PPE is in this country and, in fact, around the world, getting it to those hospitals, getting it to those hot zones around the country has been our number one priority over the course of the last couple of months. And manufacturers have really stepped up in extraordinary ways. And they have, they have had to do so in pretty difficult conditions. I'm so proud of our manufacturing workers for being there on the front lines, just like our medical professionals, just like our grocery clerks, just like our first responders. Manufacturers have been there doing exactly what you're talking about, producing those supplies necessary for the response effort, and it will be necessary for the recovery. As states open up one by one, sector by sector, we're going to need tons of millions and millions of pieces of PPE. And that's what we're in the process of doing right now. We had the former head of OSHA on the show yesterday during the Obama administration, uh, obviously both politically and in terms of you being with the manufacturers, uh, his concern being uh, strictly with employees. Uh, I'm sure you don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues, but he, he did raise the issue of sometimes employees are going to have to go back to work and they're going to be afraid that by walking into a factory, walking into you know, uh, any sort of business, not just manufacturers, uh, they're going to be risking their lives. He said uh, the current OSHA is basically AWOL. Uh, what do you, what do you, what's your take on this whole issue? Because obviously people need to work, manufacturers need employees, um, but by the same token, there, there are legitimate fears of going into a place of business. Yeah, we all want to get this economy open again. We all want people to get back to work and, and be able to grow our economy and and whatever that new normal normal state is, we want to all be a part of it. But you're exactly right. And I will tell you this, our number one priority, number one, top of the list, is the safety and the health of our manufacturing employees. So we're working overtime to make sure that a lot of protocols are in place. We got guidance from the CDC on how to make sure that the workplace is safe, can be sanitized, how employees can work at a distance from each other, to make sure that they are safe and healthy, but we do need those OSHA guidelines. There's no question about that. In the, in the recovery phase, after we've moved from response into recovery, we're going to need some pretty, pretty uh, tight guidelines from OSHA. There's no question about that. We're also going to need to see some, some liability reforms because not only manufacturers, but employers all across the economy are going to be doing everything they can to do the right thing to keep their employees safe. And we don't Frankly, we don't need jackpot justice trial lawyers trying to take advantage of a, of a very difficult situation. And the other thing, by the way, if we're talking about recovery, we'd like to see the next tranche of legislation have some tax-free bonuses or tax-free treatment of bonuses that so many manufacturers and others are giving to those essential employees right now to work. They need to be rewarded and employers need to be recognized mm-hmm. for, for stepping up too. All right, Jay Timmons, thank you so much. I'm glad that beautiful family in that picture behind you. I'm glad everyone's doing well. Thanks so much for joining us today. And to yours. Up next, we're live in Wuhan, China, where coronavirus originated. That major city also now beginning to reopen with fears of a resurgence. Stay with us. Business owners here in the United States are wondering what life might be like when things finally open again, at least in part. Perhaps there's something to be learned from what's going on right now in Wuhan, China. 
as CNN's continues, CNN continues to report from the place where coronavirus began, the former epicenter. CNN's David Culver has a special look for us now at how small businesses now opening are struggling to survive in Wuhan's new normal. Wuhan's mild spring weather luring people outside. They do not need much convincing after enduring the most extreme of lockdowns. CNN found folks enjoying the company of neighbors or soaking in the stillness, all the while still wearing face masks. A reminder that the original epicenter of the novel coronavirus outbreak is not in the clear. Two weeks after Wuhan lifted its lockdown, a drive through commercial streets shows many storefronts still shuttered. The shops staying open, finding a new way to serve customers. You can only go up until the box up front. They've got a little table set up. You order with somebody who either comes to the door or you can do it through an app. The idea is you are not to go in to the store. All of this still open business, but also keep a social distance. But for some small business owners, there is no reopening in sight. For private businesses like us, there's almost no subsidies. We talked with Mr. Wong. CNN agreed not to use his full name as he wanted to avoid any trouble with local officials. After three months of sitting closed, the 35-year-old restaurant owner is struggling with rent. If a government relief check arrives, he says the assistance will likely come too late, especially if there's another spike in infections here. Considering the possibility of a second wave, very likely we will leave this business and find another job. Mr. Wong opened up about the mental health struggles of living under lockdown, sealed inside his home. I was actually very scared at that time. When I saw the news that the pandemic was gradually under control, I felt less nervous. When I got bored at home, I just watched TV. I played on my phone and slept. And yet Mr. Wong, like many across the world, also had to deal with news that three of his loved ones contracted the virus, one of his extended family members passing away. Of course, we were very sad. We couldn't see him for the last time when he died or even give him a farewell ceremony. It was a big regret in our heart. We will go to his grave after the pandemic to hold a simple ceremony for him. Likely thousands of similarly delayed remembrances to take place here in Wuhan over the weeks ahead, as others cautiously move forward with living. These, the faces of those who endured a harsh lockdown, now navigating their way into an uncertain future. And David, you mentioned that business owner is hoping for a government check. How many people are hoping for the same thing and how likely is it going to happen? As you know, Jake, with official numbers, it's tough to get those and tough to verify the accuracy of things. But let me just say anecdotally, I mean, driving around, one of the things we wanted to confirm and the reason that we're here in part is because state media will portray things as though businesses are all coming back online. Things are all reopening and life here in Wuhan is simply resuming almost as it once was. That's not what we're seeing as we're driving almost every other storefront, if not more than half the storefronts, are still shuttered. They're still closed. And some of the small business owners, like the gentleman you saw there, say they will not be getting any government assistance anytime soon. They say maybe it'll come down the line, but certainly not in time for when it will be actually be effective for them to stay open. And it is interesting to see how many businesses simply seem to be in a place of insecurity and uncertainty when it comes to ever reopening.
Hart, David Culver in Wuhan, China. Excellent report as always. Thank you so much, sir. Employees at facilities responsible for getting your food to your table, such as meatpacking plants, now sounding the alarm about outbreaks in the United States, fearing they may lose their jobs or infect their families. Stay with us. Food processing facilities have emerged as new hotspots for coronavirus infection and spread, especially in the Midwest and south of the United States. At least 28 plants reporting confirmed cases, some even deaths. But as of right now, only nine of those plants are currently closed. Tyson closed its largest pork plant in the small town of Waterloo, Iowa yesterday. There are now 380 confirmed cases in that town, mostly related to the Tyson plant. Half of the cases in the county there are connected to the plant, and the mayor of Waterloo is now accusing Tyson of closing the plant too late. CNN's Gary Tuckman joins me now from Waterloo, Iowa. Gary, that Tyson's plant decided to close, but only after being urged to close by the health board. Is that right? That's right, Jake. And this is a very upsetting, nerve-wracking time here, not only for the people who work in this huge pork processing plant, but for their families, for this community of Waterloo, Iowa, for this county of Black Hawk County, Iowa, because the cases in this county have spiked, and a lot of it is because of this plant. About 2,800 people work here, 182 positive COVID cases, but that is a very low number because most of the people have not been tested yet. Those tests are still to come. We imagine that the numbers will spike. Now, we want to give you an idea of what Tyson is saying about the decision to close this yesterday. People here have been asking for days and weeks for the governor to close this. She did not close it for Tyson to close it, and Tyson decided yesterday. Tyson says, while we understand the necessity of keeping our facilities operational so that we can feed the nation, the safety of our team members remains our top priority. The combination of worker absenteeism, COVID-19 cases, and community concerns has resulted in a collective decision to close. Many of the employees very concerned. They don't think Tyson did enough while they were inside there. I want to give you a look at what one employee told me about what he said to his company when he made a phone call last week. So you called HR and you said what? I was concerned about the coronavirus being in the plant and I was, I was scared for me and my family. And what did HR say to you? They told me um, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was safe and they told me that um, everything was okay and they told me I'll have a better chance uh, catching the coronavirus, going out to Walmart, then enticing, come to work, you're safe. And did you believe them? I wanted to believe them, and then I needed that money at the same time, so I went to work. That man, Ernest Latiker, has been tested for COVID on Monday. He hasn't gotten his results back yet. He is very scared. Jake? All right, Gary Tuckman in Waterloo, Iowa. Thanks so much. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.